The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. Gene Munster, who a lot of you have seen over the years doing the media runs, deep water asset management. Gene, introduce yourself for those who are not familiar with who you are, what's your background, how'd you get involved, interested in markets, and why technology? I'm curious one by nature. My nickname as a, a student was The Riddler. I just asked so many questions, and knowing and investing and following tech is uh, the ultimate expression of curiosity. And so that's, uh, I think, why just as part of my DNA. I've come from a background of uh, my previous job was a an equity analyst covering technology companies. And over the past six years, I've had a calling to build an asset management firm along with a core team that I worked with in my previous job. And 50 Two years old, I round up. I always like to round up on that. Uh, kid at heart, and it's a pleasure to be here. So it is interesting to me, these narratives around the tech space. And one thing that you know, you and I both have continuously heard in the media is technology doesn't like higher rates. Right? These are long-duration plays, and as rates keep rising, that's not good for the technology sector. Except that when I look at technology relative to the S&P, especially this year, it hasn't really been that bad. Technology is now effectively kept in line with broad equities going back to September of 2021, despite that narrative. Help us out. Why is it that that narrative is right or wrong? What are people getting incorrect about the interaction of Fed policy to the tech sector? It's the second derivative. And so that first derivative is rates are low and they're going to go high. And that whole calculation around the discount rate and the impact on asset values, that's why everything saw that sharp drop. Over the last year, the NASDAQ is down uh, 17.4%. And so I think uh, that's one piece to it. But as you said, if you kind of back out and look at different periods there, it's not as bad. And I think that the the narrative is accurate, that you do not want to fight the Fed, especially with risk on investments like technology companies. And I think it's also important that the, the question going forward is less about is interest rates, are interest rates going up? It's more, of course, about what the pace and the slope of the second derivative is. And that piece, we're not going to have another, you know, 450 basis points of increases in 2023. I would say that's highly unlikely. And uh, the fact that it may only be, you know, an extra 150 basis points or 100 basis points for the rest of this year, maybe even less than that, I think is encouraging to investors who want to put risk on. And I think that's what you've seen 
this year and our last you know month is just that I think better understanding is also uh, the factor of just getting run over and the markets are you know there's there's three kind of vector points around uh, the market there's unemployment numbers there's the CPI number and then there's the Fed commentary and the more reps that uh, investors have had at kind of navigating each of those. I think they become more comfortable at some of the uncertainty going into those events. We're going to have another one this week with the CPI number. And so I think that's another just there's a psychological factor that it's, uh, in other words, maybe said in a more simple way is that investors have been through a lot and there's there's little that the Fed or the CPI number is going to say that's probably really going to spook them going forward. The other thing that spooks people, of course, is yeah when you see these these cost cuts, right, with these mega cap companies. And the initial reaction actually isn't that bad. You would think that these stocks will be down, but they actually keep on rallying on the kind of efficiency arguments. What's the state of, of employment now in the tech sector? Are a lot of these job cuts done from what you've seen? And could it actually be a net positive, right? Because you can argue you're, you're kind of trimming the fat. And once you have the code built out for a lot of these companies, as we've seen with Musk with Twitter, you probably don't need too many other employees. You know, it, it's uh, one of those conversations that, you know, you obviously, it goes without saying you don't want to see people lose their job. And so it's a kind of a hard, callous conversation to have. But if, if we can just go there, is that these cuts are good for these companies' business models. And to answer your first question is how much have we been, how much cutting have we had, and how much more is there going to be any more to go? And the answer is, if you look at the broader, the, the top seven mega caps, is that they've, if you look at their kind of the corporate staff, so this would exclude warehouses for Amazon or, or manufacturing lines for Tesla, is that there's been about a 7% reduction. If you look at the headcount, the average headcount since the beginning of the pandemic for all these companies, it's up about 60%, six zero. So, Yes, there's been uh, a retracement, but it has not been nearly to the level. They still added a lot of people. And I think it sets up that the number, the, just the raw number of employees that these mega cap companies that many, not even the mega caps, that many of these tech companies are going to have is going to continue to decline through 2023 and into 2024. And I think attrition is going to be a big part of that. Typical life is about nine years at, at a tech company, typical uh, employment period. And so you can almost have, you get a little bit more than 10% turnover on an annual basis if you want that. And so I think you're going to continue to see those numbers go down. They may not have headline layoffs. Apple's a great case. You don't see the layoffs, but they're definitely being more, they're cutting the the number of people that they have. And so I think uh, we'll continue to see that. And I think it will be to the benefit of earnings. That is a topic that a lot of these tech companies haven't wanted to have with their employees over the past five, 10 years. It's been more of a family approach to how these companies kind of uh, nurture their employees. And this is a shift. It's going to be a, a cultural change at a lot of these companies, more towards recognition that profit margin is important and they want to reward investors. And so I think the setup for margin expansion for 2024 is uh, I'm optimistic about it. And I suspect that kind of the back half of this year, more investors is happening right now. But I think that will increasingly be part of the optimism around some of these tech companies. I think it's a value company with a growth optionality. I'm not trying to split hairs, and but I think that's the reality. And that's what makes it so unique is that 
they have the type of stability that a, a, a Staples company like Coca-Cola or Clorox has. The growth rates are a little bit better than those companies, Staples companies. If you look at, you know, Apple is going to grow kind of mid-single digits, maybe a little bit higher than that. But what we've seen, especially over the past couple quarters, is just the resiliency of these products, despite the fact that they're expensive. And I think that that is a, a sign that investors can sleep well at night knowing that people are dependent on their products. It's been logical. We think about how many of these Apple products that our, our lives use, but it's been tested and it's kind of passing the test. Even with the iPhone being down, uh, it was down 8% in the December quarter. They tried to, uh, you know, they said back it out, constant currency basis, it was flat. That's still good. And given what happened with the broader cell phone, the mobile phone market being down in some countries, 20, 30%. So my answer is it's not a, a high grower, but they you have that optionality around growth. And this is an area that I tread cautiously in and obviously made some big mistakes in there. The one that I... I feel like it's always important for me to talk about is the miss that I had on Apple TV and the lessons I learned from that. And relative to the question about growth in Apple is the the lesson that I learned is Apple's a big company and they have resources to work on a lot of different things and they may not see the light of day. And that there is a light year gap between working on something and having a product. And when it comes to Apple and is it a growth company or a value company, I think that it is value today. And then if one of these other optionality hits, and I'm thinking most about the car, that could be pretty dramatic. I mean, that alone, th- this is a, a piece that, again, if this is like uh, offering somebody who shouldn't be drinking a drink to talk about a future product that Apple has been, uh, is Apple's working on and the potential impact. But if we go there and they do come out with a car, this could more than double the size of the company. And of course, there's a profitability impact, negative impact in the near term. But this is a big market and Apple has uh, that optionality on the table, which makes it unique and kind of as a growth or value asset. I do. And I was actually just looking at some of the kind of that dynamic. And if you look at like big tech, it's been pretty quiet. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. And, of course, this isn't blockchain, but Lear, and I forget what it was, DM or Denim or uh, Facebook's initiative, kind of in crypto, tangentially related. They ended that middle of last year, September of last year. So it's been surprisingly quiet from big tech and part because of of just some of the headlines that have come out. And I think it's, of course, shocked some, uh, whether it's blockchain and I think crypto gets wrapped into that. I'm a big believer in blockchain. I think it's much bigger than crypto. And I think that if you look at these companies, I think like, for example, Meta and what they're doing with the metaverse, I think blockchain is going to be 
fundamental to that. It changes their whole business model because it, it gets outside of kind of their wall garden that they've relied on for 20 years. But I think that that's going to be, you'll hear more from them on that. They have to, because decentralized is going to be just, I think, a, a fundamental piece about Web 3.0. So I don't have like specifics about knowledge of a, a product or an initiative that some of these companies are working on. But I suspect, especially Meta and Google and Apple, you're going to hear more on blockchain in the next year plus. I'm curious, Gene, um, where are we on acquisitions and M&A when it comes to technology? So on the one hand, obviously, you know, rates are higher, it's costlier to finance, you know, purchasing another company. But presumably, given especially some of the devastation with some of these, uh, you know, no-profit tech companies that, you know, do have something viable, there you'd expect there could be a flurry of activity. And a lot of these tech companies that are, you know, on the mega cap side are flush with cash, so they may not even to may not even need to finance uh, those acquisitions. Where are we in that cycle? They want to do it. I remember talking a last summer of 2022 with an M and A person at, let's say, one of the top five companies. And just the uh, comment was, we are sharpening our pencils. And you haven't seen much activity, but they recognize that things have come back here. And I think that there is uh, still this regulation environment that they're trying to navigate as well. Meta just got the approval, I forget the name of that, virtual reality fitness app that was, they it was kind of took on a whole life of its own, that whole conversation. But I think that in the absence of concern about regulation, I think you'd have, have seen really, a, uh, I would have expected a flurry of activity at the end of 2022. We didn't see it, but the, the fundamentals don't change. These companies have bounced off. Some of these ones that still have good tech that have bounced off the bottoms. I mean, they're down 70, 80, 90%. You know, they're up 50% in a month, but they're still you know, significantly lower and attractive, in my view, for some of these big companies. So I, I think that we will see more M&A activity from, from big tech. I've got a list of companies. Unfortunately, we own some of those companies. So I don't want to mention those as like, I just don't want to get the market excited about, you know, thinking we we uh, are overly optimistic on a company on an M&A takeout. But there's definitely a, a play to be made, a, a a portfolio to be built around big tech M and A over the next few years. You mentioned uh, regulation, and you know, to your point, nobody's really talked too much about blockchain on the large cap tech side. But there's a lot of talk around AI, Chat GPT. I wonder, do you think there's going to be if if this really does become sort of the wave of the future, which it seems like it wants to be, and we'll talk about you know Microsoft and some of its initiatives. At some point, do you think regulation will kick in? I, I think there's a real perhaps overblown fear, but I think legitimate at the same time, that as more and more focuses on AI, everyone assumes that it's going to give an answer which is non-biased. Uh, and, you know, there's societal implications on not being able to watch the watcher in terms of the conclusions being being spit out there. It's intense. My, I'm kind of numb from the whole thing. And uh, we, we, we missed it up until it came out in, uh, in November and have been closely tracking it and just been very impressed by where ChatGPT is at. Uh, I haven't tried BARD yet. And I think it really speaks to the opportunity that AI has. And it is, you've, you've heard, there's, I'm 
I'm struggling to probably uh, add something because there's been so much talked about it. So I'll just get to the basics is that it is a structural change into basically a workflow. It's a workflow uh, structural change. Search is a form of work and composition of PowerPoints and emails are, are part of that too. And so this is a, it's a step function change. And I think given some of our skepticism around truth, the word truth, and how much misinformation has is out there and it's just kind of becoming a part of how we navigate the web, I think that uh, there's going to be this massive skepticism around, you know, how biased is AI. So maybe starting point number one, we're not going to be able to stop it. And my uh, family is, um, I uh, frequently talk to them about their concerns about AI and I share some of those and I, they want investors to do something to stop it. And unfortunately, there's very little to do when uh, they get $10 billion from Microsoft, OpenAI does, and Google spend as much as probably a similar amount. So it's going to happen. And then the question is, you know, how does it impact regulation? And this is, it's very similar to when Facebook opened up outside of college campuses and just started going rampant growth and trying to get your heads around what does it mean for kind of society and mental health at that point, it it would have been pretty difficult to have projected what the impact is going to be. And I think we're in a similar state here and it's not going to happen. This We're going to talk about it a lot for the next six months, a year. And then we're probably not going to talk about it for a while. And then slowly it's going to come back more into mainstream. And 10 years from now, it's going to be something that uh, we're going to have to navigate. I don't have a good answer around the the piece around regulation and trying to make AI that's not biased. I can say this. It's a similar conversation around uh, misinformation out there. And companies and the government have not been able to find a way to properly moderate and navigate that. Yeah, and, and it, it, this has been sort of a, a struggle for me in terms of, uh, obviously I agree with you, it's, it's not stoppable. But at the same time, what concerns me even more than the bias is just the idea that people may not be able to properly think anymore if they simply get an answer and that's how they that's how they live their lives, right? I mean, the, you, Pretty I'm sure scary. you've seen some of those YouTube videos. Yeah, no, really, like I've seen some of these YouTube videos, I'm sure you have too, right? Where it's like, well, here's how you can make a YouTube video and you have ChatGPT do a script and then you hire somebody on Fiverr to do a couple of graphic things, you know, text to speech. And now you've got a whole content uh, machine that has nothing to do with your thoughts. It's purely driven by this, this algorithm. Yeah, it's, in- it's intense. It's a, I mean, the whole education system is going to get turned upside down. Different classes, I mean, different are going to be impacted. But just to kind of go there, like, let's take that one piece. Think about cheating, for example. Easy to cheat with chat GPT. And the you right now you go into school you, you you're in class and then this is how most schools work and you go home and do homework and then you come back and there's probably going to be some like flip flop in that and there's going to be where you do watch the lecture at home and then somebody watches you do your homework watches you make sure that you're not using Chat GPT and other AI tools to do your your homework and it's tough especially for schools that don't have the resources to. Uh, like monitor people, but that's probably what is going to come down to is more tests and in word form. And um, and I'm a half uh, full person, class half full. And I think that 
ultimately what this is going to come down to is that what's going to separate you know, people uh, from a career perspective. And this is something we've talked about for the last six years and now more than ever is that the the soft skills are what's going to, there's going to be, we're just going to lose people to this, just like we lost people to gaming and, you know, or, or to TikTok. And they just kind of, we've all seen it, been at uh, restaurants and, and seen the dynamic at a table when TikTok's taken over the table. And I think, unfortunately, you're going to see People try to work and use these tools and not give any thought. But then there's going to be a whole other group that's going to recognize creativity, community, and empathy. Those three things machines can't do. And I think that people who can really shine on those skills are going to be winners. I used to be pretty down on salespeople. I thought sales was kind of the partier who uh, you know, really wasn't, didn't want to do the hard work of learning a hard skill and therefore they shouldn't get paid much. And I've had over the last six years, just a a 180 in how I think about that. And especially with these AI tools that are coming out, I think salespeople should be the highest paid people in an organization. A good salesperson, they know how to be creative. They know how to empathize with the customer and they know how to build community with them. Machine will never do that. Even if machine does it, it's not going to be authentic. And there's something about humans that want to see things that are authentic. I was looking at some of the images from Dolly. I was putting a presentation together over the weekend and it was very helpful to kind of create some pretty cool images that really hit the thought that I was uh, shooting for. For those of you who don't know Dolly, it's ChatGPT. It's the image version. You give it prompts and then it creates an image in maybe 10 seconds. It give you like four images. But there's something about those images that it's creating that's still early that just, just knowing that a machine knocked it out doesn't feel as good. And I think that's going to be the ultimate opportunity. And Michael, just to bring it full circle here, it's, it's, for me, it's simple. There's a group of, uh, of people who are going to gravitate to easy, easy life, and they're going to embrace these tools and kind of, kind of drift. And there's going to be another group that's going to say, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not going to play by those rules, and I'm going to, I'm going to really work on the, the, the soft skills. And I think people will recognize that, and I think those people are going to, going to really excel. Which is an interesting thought process because that, that would suggest that the ultimate effect of AI is it's only going to widen the wealth gap. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, I think it will. I think that, I mean, that's exactly it, is that, uh, you know, to be able to separate yourself, think of what are the hardest things to do. The hardest things to do are the people things to do. It's when there's conflict to pick up the phone and call somebody on on conflict versus send a message. Those are the things that are hard to do. And it just feels like it's a really lightweight, like there's really not much substance in a comment like that. But I think that is going to be a big, big separator of the wealth gap as the people that are able to connect are, are going to be winners. Now, they'll probably use some sort of an AI tool, some of the real good ones to try to amplify their connection. But that's just like using the internet to amplify your connection. 
think that some of the big ones won't be around. If I was going to guess which of the big ones are, I mean, they'll be around, but they'll be shells of what they were before. I think Honda in a tight spot. I would have said Toyota's in a tight spot before their recent leadership change. You probably saw some of the comments from their new CEO about how they really want to embrace EVs and I think Lexus all EVs in 2026. And this is a, I'm, I've been accused, I think incorrectly, that there's like a religious thing going on here when I when I think about how traditional auto is positioned. And uh, it's a well-traveled thought, but just to recap it, it's uh, catch 22. And I think ultimately that catch 22 is going to lead to some cars that have, makers that have been around for a long time won't be around. I think Ford's going to be around. They're struggling to try to figure their path forward. They sold 13,000 electric F-150s, best-selling car in the U.S. They sold 600,000 gas versions. They sold 13,000 electric last year. They had uh, a third of the year to get that. That's not very impressive. They just canceled their Argo division. Volkswagen and Ford uh, cumulatively put $2.8 billion into that over the last four years. And so I think that there's an opportunity that uh, they need to just an, uh, an example of how what I think dysfunctional traditional auto is. So I, I guess I, I hope I'm wrong on Honda. I picked on Honda. There's other car companies out there that just won't be the same size. And, and we can go through and enumerate why what the, the real breakpoints are on these companies. So who's going to be who's going to be the winner? I'm sure some of the traditional autos are going to figure things out. I think Tesla's going to do uh, in a great position just based on their manufacturing. And I think uh, the products that they're going to have coming out in the next few years are going to be more impressive with a car, with a truck. And then we'll hear about the Model A or uh, the Robo Taxi, whatever they want to call it. So I think they're in a good spot. I think Rivian's in a, a good spot. I think they've got some kind of issues to work through, but I think they're in a in a good spot. And I think Volkswagen's in a good spot. Everybody, please make sure you follow Gene Munster here on Twitter, uh, and obviously you should show support to him with his various media appearances when he's um, on these different platforms. This will be, again, an edited conversation on all your favorite podcast platforms under that lead lag live banner. And again, if anybody wants to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left micro press button. Let's go to uh, questions. Yeah, it would be partnership and partnership in the sense of they would have to work with a manufacturer They're, they would not be uh, manufacturing the car that's what advantage that tesla has of course is that vertical manufacturing and how that impacts cost of manufacturing and time to market so i think that they would have to app would have to partner with a third party it could be a traditional car maker for the manufacturing it could be you know magna for example they make jaguar i believe the the canadian company there's I should know this. There's there's like three or four like well-known cars that they make. You'd never know they were made it by them. But one uh, piece uh, sticks out with the conversation about manufacturing and Apple and how they would do that is Apple is not, it's unlikely that Apple is going to approach it in like a true partnership, VW standing lock, locked arm with Apple. It would be that uh, VW could build the car, but you would, you'd have to like, take it apart to see that it's built by vw apple's going to want to control the design and the, the the software in it and so what car companies are is effectively brands and at least historically they've been i think tesla's i think cut a new angle in that 
And I think that's the part that gets difficult for these car companies in partnering or uh, with Apple if it's a traditional car company. Maybe you're not saying that. Maybe you're just talking about just partnering with a manufacturer. They definitely will have to do that. Apple's. I think it's unlikely that they'll build a, a factory and manage that that whole process. So and uh, you know then it kind of you talk about all the different products and that, that creative connective tissue. All that makes sense. And I would just add one piece to it is that. Apple's got a problem. I mean, they, they can keep growing at 5% and be Coca-Cola and Clorox, but tech companies, part of their DNA is to to grow faster and to, to to try to, you know, kind of explore new things. And so I think the car is, it's just such a juicy market, so messed up and lots, so much money is out there that I think that they kind of got to figure a way out to get there. Agree, there's a, that the picks and shells of AI is, uh, more exciting than talking about Google or Microsoft can say we own Google and uh, one of our funds. And then we own, and then we don't mess around with uh, a lot of the other smaller quote AI companies and we own the, the chips and mostly on the chip side uh, for the hardware side, just for the build out, because it's going to be a race. And so as far as how big of a race it's going to be and uh, what's the energy and the storage component and, and where do you get that energy from and how much capacity is out there, the numbers out there, there's there's a wide spectrum. And some, some things I've read uh, suggest that there's no way that we can integrate AI to search because there's not enough computing capacity in the world to do that. And then Microsoft says they can do it. Google says they can do it. And then there's the power question and then there's the uh, storage question. And I don't have a good answer about like how big it's going to be, but that that level is going to be critical and it's going to grow and it will accelerate and grow the, for these companies. And so I think that, you know, energy and storage to on the clean energy side is going to be, and I think kind of a second layer to AI. I think they just want to, get the juice to run this run the machines that's going to be the next five years and then a layer in a storage piece and maybe just specifically because you're talking a little bit about tesla specifically there too or was it just more of a broader industry question because i've got a thought of i think about their energy and storage as two different businesses i think solar and then i think the batteries solar is cute and I want uh, one piece on the numbers that I don't think people talk about payback periods. Just one quick thought on solar. They talk about payback periods and a typical solar system. It's like a 10, 12 year payback period, even with the 30% the increased uh, kickback. And with a solar roof, they'll usually quote you an installer will quote you 18 to 20 years for a typical system for a payback. Typical system out of pockets, $100,000 after rebates. And uh, for solar roof, the problem with that, 18 to 20 year payback period. If you'd put that 100 grand in the market on day one and earn 5% a year, you're never going to get a payback on it. it. Like it, It's like the worst financial decision you can make. And so unless you're doing it for, bottom line is this, is solar uh, pricing needs to come down, like meaningfully for adoption increase. On the storage side, that's a different equation. Because there are corporate buyers out there who can buy a lot. And I, I think Tesla does a great job. The reason why I haven't, talked as much about it as I'm still trying to figure out how grid scale storage is going to be done. We're investing in a, um, a company called Antora and they've been around for five years making a ton of progress, but making these massive batteries that are cheap that, are, that can be used for these data centers, kind of factor of one third the, the price of like a, a Tesla battery. And so 
Uh, I suspect the performance on a Tesla battery is a lot better, but when you really scale this up, you got to find, I think, cheaper alternatives. And so I'm still trying to figure it out is the bottom line and trying to uh, kind of weigh the payback period for like a Tesla battery versus some of these other grid scale batteries. It's a first kind of principles piece that uh, I understand Elon's been thinking about just how do you re-engineer the grid and all these big batteries that are floating around out there. I think one of the reasons why it, it hasn't taken more form is that the, or one challenge that people have when they buy an EV is range anxiety. And they want to get as uh, much juice in the battery, as much as many miles as possible. And even for people who don't use the range, most people don't use the the, the range. They're, they can get through a, a week and for sure a day with a, a current charge. But I think there um, maybe some people may be a little bit apprehensive to give back, use their car to give back to the the uh, grid. If it's if it's being if your car's uh, parked and it's just uh, being juiced up, and then once it's full, you can't get any more uh, energy into it. And so I think there's a, a piece around that that to say it a different way is in, in principle uh, all that makes sense. In theory, I think it's it's uh, you know below the fold in terms of Tesla's priority, which means we're probably a ways away. The one piece that does work, and like GM is doing this too, I forget who else, where you can plug your car. Here's what you're talking about too: is you can plug your car into your house, so your power goes out. You can use your car as a backup. I forget what that. There's a generator company. It's called Generator Generac. Thank you. Like people can't stop. Don't own one, but people who have them, they just swear by them. Uh, we, I'm in, in Minnesota and we have two power outages a year. It's not a big deal, but a lot of people have more brownouts, but that's one thing I definitely could see Tesla do is just allow you to, you know, you're not buying the, uh, maybe that's what you're talking about all along, but you're not buying the, you don't buy the battery for your garage. But if you need that three hours of juice to keep your refrigerator going and a few lights on your house, you can plug your, use your car as that uh, battery. I could definitely see that. I want to uh, just pivot for the remaining few minutes here. And again, everybody, please make sure you follow Gene uh, Munster. I put a tweet out. I just dug it up from the search from November of 2021, where I said the, uh, the hype around the metaverse is reminiscent of the hype around 3D TVs. I think that aged fairly well, but maybe not for too long. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the metaverse, if that's ever going to be as uh, popular of a thing as it was back then, if that was just sort of a, a moment in time or if the, the longer term uh, idea of, of this kind of virtual world, if that's going to come back into the popular narrative. I think it's going to come back. I don't want it to come back. The reason why I think it's, it's on its way back is that even with uh, meta reducing how much they're spending it's still a large number if it was 11 billion before 10 billion and reality labs and they cut that to 7 billion and of course apple's working on their different versions of they won't use the word metaverse but it's basically the same thing with their ar glasses or this uh mixed reality glasses and so i think that there's a there's definitely a, a, a push and the push is going to continue and there's a push for uh, 3d tv too i think it's a great example and uh, well, well played on that. I, I think that uh, the question comes down, and this has been our view for the past year, as we've struggled with where the metaverse has been, is, is there going to be something beyond mobile? 
And if the answer is mobile and variations of mobile, how we know it, a screen in our pocket is going to be what we're going to have for the next 30 years, then the metaverse isn't going to, uh, going to happen. But if there's a, if there's like just a natural guess about like what beyond could that be, what could be beyond that, beyond the, the phone, it seems like it's the metaverse more uh, as defined as something that's uh, more immersive could be part of the real world and artificial world together like AR. But so that's the piece that I think it's going to find its way. I think the quest pro that really hasn't been doing much. Uh, The quest hardware for, for meta, I think it was down 30% year over year in the December quarter, a little bit of a tough comp of a new product, but that's not a sign that a market's taken off. So I'd say all indications are, we're on a, a fast track for 3D TV, but I think uh, the world's going to want to move beyond. And part of it too is that I look at the engagement around gaming, and that's pretty intense. And I think that you know these types of experiences kind of play into that that emotion that people have around gaming. Therefore, I think that I think that it will be addictive, and ultimately, I think it's going to uh, unfortunately be part of of how we live for those that, um, you know, want to invest more similar to you, um, and, and are trying to maybe identify the next major trend or theme in the tech space. What would be your suggestion? What are some of the things that you look for that says, okay, that's an emerging uh, dynamic that you got to pay attention to. Well, we considered frontier tech and, uh, there's different pockets that we, uh, as we think about frontier tech and metaverse is one of those, areas uh batteries evs ai and so we just kind of break down each theme and debate each theme just a plug for our we have an etf ticker loup that does that it basically looks at the those kind of four core themes and then we rebalance it on a on a monthly basis and so the answer is how do you do it if you want to if you believe in a theme I think one way to do it is just to do the research yourself. I think another is to find some other ETF out there that, you know, if you believe in the metaverse, there's metaverse ETFs out there. There's AI ETFs. It's just kind of a nice way to do it because then someone else kind of figures it out for you. You can own the theme. We do ours. It's kind of like, don't we will pick the emerging theme within that too. And so that's kind of what makes us a little bit different, but that's how I would do it is uh, pick a theme that you feel passionate about and, and, uh, I think ETFs are great for thematic investing. I like how you kind of categorize that. I think there's uh, experiences. I think there's time at home and there's time at work. Generally, the, the kind of those three. And the experiences piece is one that's still, I think for a long time, going to be kind of dominated by less tech. And uh, that's stuff like uh, going to parties and, you know, there'll be tech enabled uh, experiences so like for example you watch the super bowl and there's you know there's more technology that's in that production every year there's just more production i was just amazed at uh the different technology that kind of layers onto that kind of community experience so i think uh that piece and then you know as far as uh what's going on at the home and uh at work at home people are are lazy i'm, I'm guilty of it and i think uh don't try to be. I try to pride myself on that, but I'm sure there's times I'm lazy. And I think that those are going to be really amplified 
technology experiences. And I think the winners are probably going to be the big tech companies. There's going to be small private companies that will get acquired by them. But like, if you believe in the metaverse, you own Meta. And um, probably Apple, too, because they're going to have the devices. TikTok has uh, AR headset or an MR or VR headset. I forget the name of it. So I recommend, I don't know how you invest in TikTok, wouldn't uh, recommend doing it. But I think there's uh, kind of the big tech companies. And unfortunately, it sounds really like an elementary student could tell you that. Uh, but I think that's probably who's going to uh, really dominate it. And on the work front, I think that the tools around it are going to be powerful. Some of the hardware will be there that will kind of spill over from the consumer. But there's going to be another company, like a Zoom-like type of company that's going to come out that we haven't even heard of. It's going to probably be built on all the buzzwords on blockchain. It's going to be in the metaverse. Uh, that's going to actually be able to provide some sense of real presence in a in a remote work type of a, a scenario. And so I don't have the companies uh, today on that, but I'm, I believe we're in the metaverse and I think we're going to see some of that, this real innovation. We haven't seen it in the enterprise for a long time. Zoom was one, but we I think there's going to be a big opportunity for these tech to kind of transform how we do things at work. I will say real quick, I would be a big fan of the metaverse if, a day in the metaverse was 36 hours instead of 24, uh, so I can get more things done. So Mark. with that said, I appreciate everybody that's joined here. Please make sure you follow Gene Munster. Thank you. really do appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.